HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome the 2023 recipient of the Julia Child Award, Chef Sean Sherman. In this episode, we're going to talk to Sean about what it means to receive the award the importance of indigenous foodways, and we'll hear Sean's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Not much is more inspired by Julia than the Julia Child Award, now being presented to its ninth recipient. In creating the award, the Foundation's trustees wanted to shine a light on those in the food world following closely in Julia's footsteps. As Julia remains a towering figure, the award criteria too are lofty. The recipient should be an educator, communicator, innovator, mentor, and bridge builder who acts with independence, integrity, and public spirit. Yeah, it's a very high bar that Julia set with her own example. As tall an order as that may be for the jury, puns intended, each year they find someone whose accomplishments rise to or often surpass Julia's. The Julia Child Award was created by the foundation to spotlight those still in their prime who are making a profound and significant difference in the way Americans cook, eat, and drink. The award comes with a $50,000 grant from the foundation to enable the recipient to further the work that matters most to them. 
It also comes with a beautiful engraved copper pan and recognition from the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, the home of Julie's Kitchen. This year, the jury selected Chef Sean Sherman for his achievements as a chef, educator, author, and activist preserving and promoting indigenous foodways. The first Native American to receive the award, Sean is Aglala Lakota, raised on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota, as were his parents and grandparents. Now based in Minneapolis, Sean works to reclaim and honor the culinary heritage of indigenous communities in the U.S. and around the world. Sean started working in restaurants as a teenager in South Dakota, worked for the U.S. Forest Service, where he gained an enhanced understanding of native plants before he moved to Minneapolis, where, still in his 20s, he became an executive chef in a wide range of restaurant and food service kitchens. As a chef, Sean began to prioritize locally sourced ingredients, leading him towards researching native foods. He first founded the Sioux Chef, S-I-O-U-X, a company focused on creating regional indigenous foods utilizing products from tribal producers, native heirloom agricultural products, regionally foraged wild foods, and alternative proteins. Sean is also working to make indigenous foods more widely accessible through his nonprofit, North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems, aka Natives, and its Indigenous Food Lab, a professional indigenous kitchen and training center. Native's mission is to empower Native communities to generate wealth and improve health through the reestablishment of Native foodways and food-related businesses. For his efforts, Sean has earned three James Beard Awards, including Best American Cookbook for the Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen, Best New Restaurant in America for Minnesota's first full-service Indigenous restaurant, Awamni by the Sioux Chef, and the Leadership Award on top of numerous other national accolades. He was recently named one of the Time 100 Most Influential People of 2023. Sean joins us today to tell us more about his work to preserve and expand Indigenous food knowledge and what receiving the Julia Child Award means to him. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thanks for having me. It's great you could join us. I'm excited for our conversation. So I wanted to start because I think it's quite important, um, both historically and, and personally for you, with talking about the Pine Ridge Reservation, because to me, it's both a place that has a lot of pride associated with it, but also a lot of sorrow. And so I wanted to kind of ask you, how how does being someone who was grew up on Pine Ridge and comes from there kind of influence what you do today, your approach, how you think about the world? I think it obviously um, has a huge impact on everything that I do, and it's a big reason why I do what I do. Because um, for me, growing up on Pine Ridge, you know, we grew up in the country mostly. We're extremely rural. Um, I think the school I went to, I think my class had 12 people in it. And, um, you know, it was just a really interesting space. Like we just spent a lot of time outdoors. We didn't really have TV. We had about two and a half channels. And we just uh, spent all of our time outside, um, just being around nature. And, you know, that that upbringing is something that's really, really special to me. Um, but also just, you know, when I did have the epiphany of what I'm doing, it really came from at a point in life where I had was kind of taking a break uh, from chef world because chef 
jobs can be extremely demanding. Um, and I was working way too much and I spent some time decompressing. So I moved down to Mexico onto the coast of the Nayarit, which is on the Pacific Ocean. And uh, I became really acquainted with the, an indigenous group down there called the Huichol. And I did a lot of research with them. And I just found a lot of commonalities between their lifestyle and what I grew up with Lakota, with Lakota people in my past and you know so it was just like um, some of their mannerisms and humor and um, really beautiful beadwork and some of the cer ceremonies were really similar and I just started researching their histories and something just clicked and I just you know for some reason realized that I knew very little about indigenous foods especially Lakota foods where I came from and when I started looking around I realized it was just uh, a matter of complete invisibility. There was no native restaurants. There was uh, very few cookbooks on the subject, but nothing what I was really looking for. And, you know, it took some time to really understand, but I just saw a flash of what I needed to know, what I had to do. Um, and I just started working towards that path. Um, but, uh, you know, as I studied more and started to understand what my Lakota ancestors were eating and preserving and how are they, um, you know, there's the knowledge of plants in general of which parts of the plants were they harvesting, when are they harvesting, what are they utilizing it for, um, understanding if they were trading with other groups, what kind of agriculture was around us and, you know, so much of it. And then, then it became more of a study as to what happened to us as indigenous peoples and looking at the very short time frame because on Pine Ridge, we were still battling the U.S. government and up until 1890 because in 1890s, the Wounded Knee uh, Massacre, which was just a few miles from my house where I grew up. And a constant reminder of that history, basically just having to drive by it all the time. Um, and just looking at like how much we lost in such a very short time period, because I was born in 1974 and a hundred years before my birth in 1874, all my Lakota ancestors had a hundred percent of their knowledge base intact because they don't discover gold until 1876. So it became a huge study of just what happened in American history. So it became a matter of really naming what is U.S. colonialism and the damage it had against indigenous peoples and the structures that are still make it really difficult to be indigenous in the United States of America. Is that also the, the opportunity that you saw is that I, I think that's such an important point of putting it in context of how much indigenous culture was still there 100 years ago and that there are still people who were maybe like your grandparents who were taught many more things and that you saw like this is the moment to to capture it before it begins to disappear completely yeah you know i really wished that my grandparents were still alive because they grew up with lakota as their first language and there would have been so many more questions i wish i could focus and ask them but you know i just started piecing everything together and really utilizing a culinary lens of just understanding how people were surviving what they were eating how they're how they were preserving foods and how they were using salts and fats and sugars and and pieces like that. What kind of seasonings were people utilizing? And you know what was the pantry to play with? Um, so <clears throat> there's just so much to understand out there, and there's so much diversity. And so I started doing a lot of public speaking events and really um, bringing in that U.S. colonial history into this to the talks because the question is why aren't there native american restaurants in every single city because um, on north america like no matter where we are in north america we're it's all you know indigenous land spaces so why aren't there representations of all this amazing diversity of indigenous peoples everywhere 
And, you know, it was a hard question to answer, but, and, you know, the histories can be really difficult too, but I think it's really important to know these histories. And we're living in such a weird time frame where, you know, some states and politicians are banning histories like this um, from school books to make it even harder to understand what happened in the past. But to me, it's just one of the most important pieces. It's just educating ourselves on um, the hardships that Indigenous peoples went through and, you know, just how these systems have been built against us. And there's a lot of work, but it's also understanding the positivity of what we have to offer, which is primarily just food knowledge of just how do we survive sustainably with the world around us and utilize all this amazing plant diversity and animal diversity that really depicts North America and really defines regional cuisines of everywhere, the United States, Canada, Mexico. Yeah, I'm struck by how... There's also this distortion because it's not like everyone pretended there were not Native Americans and there was a lore that kind of put put them on a pedestal, but then reduced their... I'm just thinking about, I grew up on Shawnee land and I just actually read in the city that I grew up in, which is called Westwood, Kansas, which is a tiny little suburb. But on their historic map, they're very proud of this one house that are the family that are original descendants of the land, although they don't quite say how they ended up with only one house. And they have an elaborate, uh, it's called the Shawnee Indian Mission, which is where <laughs> Native people were converted to Christianity. So that what I'm trying to say is like, it's interesting, that part is preserved, but it's preserved through a certain lens of Absolutely. colonialization. And I think a lot of things you're working on is like reframing the lens and bringing both the truth, but also the valuable pieces of culture that have been suppressed. Is that the way you look at it? Yeah, absolutely. Because you look at a lot of the historical writings of Indigenous peoples, and rarely do you find writings that actually come from an Indigenous perspective. And most of the time, it's coming from either religious or military perspectives, you know, which are obviously um, <clears throat> conflicted. Um, because they have their very unique purposes of whatever they're writing about. So it was just a matter of filtering a lot, filtering a lot of those stories and talking with a lot of elders and, you know, just looking backwards on lots of pieces, you know, but I feel like I have a pretty good grasp of what happened in American history. I think that it's a really important history that nobody learns about and we should know about it. And, you know, it's a big part of why this food is really important. And also, you know, just developing a philosophy to define what are modern indigenous foods moving forward, because it was never the purpose to try to cook like the past, you know, I wasn't trying to cook um, like 1491. I was trying to just understand the knowledge of my ancestry from an indigenous perspective and also understanding the diversity of other indigenous communities all across North America from Alaska to Mexico and just defining how we move forward. So our philosophy was just cutting away colonial ingredients that had been introduced to us. So we removed dairy, wheat flour, cane sugar, um, beef, pork, chicken, and many other items. Like we don't even have black pepper at our restaurant, you know. Um, so we were able to really just define again, what are modern indigenous foods right now, utilizing as much knowledge as we're regaining and reclaiming from our ancestry, but also applying it to the world that we live in right now and really creating a philosophy on how we move forward with this and how we're pushing a lot of opportunity towards indigenous food producers and really highlighting a lot of those products and figuring out how can we work on distribution to get a lot of nutrition out there. Because um, food access is a huge issue on tribal communities still today, and especially where I grew up at Pine Ridge, where 
where when I grew up, there were no restaurants and we had a grocery store to service an area the size of Connecticut. And primarily we survived off of commodity food program foods, which is just not healthy. And, you know, today we're suffering uh, with lots of foodborne illnesses and some communities can have upwards to 60% type two diabetes, even in very young children. Um, and all those things really have to change, you know? So that's a big part of our efforts of what we're attempting to do to make some impactful changes. I also wanted to, I want to come back to some of that, but I also wanted to talk about, especially thinking about this, some people are calling it the summer of natural disasters. And that one thing of my understanding of Native American culture is this much more symbiosis between how you live in the land and respect for Mother Earth. And that in this period of horrible climate change, a lot of it caused by or seemingly caused by human contributions. It's like the exact opposite of indigenous culture of how. So there's a lot about, I feel like, to learn from how to live with the land in a symbiotic way rather than a, an adversarial way. Is that Does that also come into play with the agricultural techniques that you're looking at? How, how do you think about that? Absolutely. Because if you, again, just naming colonialism, which is basically the policy of acquiring full or partial political control over another country, occupying it with settlers, exploiting it economically, you can whittle that down to basically extraction for profit, you know, and, and, and power. And we see colonialism in many different forms still very much alive today in different regions of the world um, and even here in the United States. But when we're looking at indigenous food systems, you know, they were very much community based food systems that utilized a mixture of agriculture and permaculture and just that that vast knowledge of having the privilege of thousands of generations of of know-how of what to do with all the plants and animals around you and how to utilize everything extremely efficiently. And how just everybody contributed to their own food systems to make sure that they had enough supply to get through um, an entire year, and uh, and you know, and just seeing how quickly the the seasons go by, and you know, some wild plants are might be only fruiting for a couple of weeks, so you have to be on top of all these pieces. And again, there's so much diversity, and as humans, like we need certain building blocks to survive, so we have to have some kind of energy source, whether it's carbohydrates or fat. And just looking at how people were surviving in all these different unique areas and what kind of staples were people utilizing, you know. So in agricultural zones, it makes a lot of sense because we have all these amazing things like corns and beans and squash and sunflowers and more. Um, but also everybody from an indigenous perspective just really knew the world that we lived in. And the Western diet has pretty much completely ignored a lot of the North American um, amazing plant diversity that's out there and even animal diversity for the most part when it comes to our diets and that's why it was really important to set those pieces apart and to just look at like what are pre-colonial foods what does it mean to decolonize a menu um, and that's kind of the philosophy of what we attempted to do um, at, like at the restaurant of Wamini in Minneapolis. Well I'm also struck by that there's also, you know, regenerative is sort of a new and important, I think, buzzword in, in agriculture. But I feel like both practice-wise, but even philosophically, the way indigenous populations generally approach growing food, it was inherently regenerative. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because a lot of places are utilizing a mix of agriculture and permaculture. So just understanding how to tend the world around us and how environmental protections are so important, you know, and some of these climate change pieces that we're going through right now, we might not be able to scale back and we'll have to be adaptable, you know, which I think indigenous peoples have been very much resilient and adaptable with all sorts of things that were thrown at us in different forms. And it's just understanding, like, why is it it's it's knowing why indigenous communities and organizations try to stand up for land rights and for environmental rights um, because they just see the importance of utilizing the world around us for water, for plants, for food, for medicine, um, and just for our cultural diversities of holding on to those pieces. Because like here in Minnesota and the Dakotas, we've been constantly battling pipelines coming through and cutting through like really delicate uh, ecosystems where we have things like wild rice. And it's not a matter of if those pipelines leak, but when they leak and how much damage will they leave behind? And will our future generations have access to some of our ancestral foods like the wild rice that should be protected for us as indigenous peoples? I, I wanted to shift gears a little bit, and I'm conscious of the, the 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 contrast that the Julia Child Foundation and Julia Child as, as a privileged white woman um, whose family uh, settled in California in uh, around not so long after the time period um, after Wounded Knee. But I, so I was curious for you, what is the meaning and and value and how do you look at the the benefits or, or maybe the, the contradictions in being this year's Julia Child Award recipient? I believe that, you know, these, this is such a huge honor, of course, and it just really helps elevate the platform that we have to be able to really talk about some important things because we are utilizing the language of food, which is something that um, she did herself Um, because food is so powerful. Food is so um, connecting because as humans across the globe, it's something that we all need on, on a daily basis, you know. And there's a lot of issues around our food systems, the kind of diets we have, um, and cultural uh, food instances everywhere. And I think it's just really important to uh, identify those pieces. But again, the positivity comes with food, which I think reflects a lot of the values that people like Julia Child um, really instilled into the huge volume of work that they accomplished throughout their lifetime. And have you found out that, because certainly I would say for many people, the word decolonizing is is threatening or upsetting or triggering, whatever mm-hmm. word you want sure. to use. But do you find that partly because it's, I think, your natural passion just as a person, but that, as you were saying, that approaching these issues through food and where you can explain how, you know, the evidence is pretty strong of like how Western diets were killing Native Americans and that food creates a sort of um, bridge to, to discuss much more difficult issues and sort of make the medicine go down easier. Or how do you look at it? Yeah, I just think that, again, food is such um, a big language that people really get it and people love food and people love to be curious about food. So when we have this Native American restaurant and we do have some very strong stances about what we think is important for people to understand about American history and the struggles and things like that, that food does help open up those conversations because we're just showcasing something really wonderful and we try to make recipes that taste like a place, you know, so if we're here in Minnesota and we have 
dishes with pure hand harvested wild rice coming from tribal communities with blueberries and rose hips and bergamot and uh, maybe some white cedar like those things all reflect exactly where we're standing where you can literally just stand on a lake shore in minnesota and glance around and see all those ingredients right there and just understanding how um deeply cultural is significant those flavor and those flavor profiles are to this particular region but also we can do this work on a much larger scale like we can cross the colonial borders so we can do the same work in mexico or canada or overseas you know because indigenous peoples on a global scale have also been affected by colonialism so when we're utilizing terms like decolonize uh, a decolonizing our diets and pieces like that it's really understanding for us what our philosophy means about that because we're not trying to reverse time we're not trying to go back and pretend like colonization didn't happen to us we're just trying to take away some of the um, pieces of colonialism that have been um, most impactful on a negative way towards us as indigenous peoples and how can we move forward with indigenous values to really protect the land to really think about our diets to really think about our cultural diversities and celebrating those diversities and how do we bring those out into the modern world for everybody to see because our goal is to one day see native eateries all across north america where people can really experience this amazing diversity you know because there's 576 tribes in the u.s 622 in canada and um 20 of mexico identifies as indigenous so there's just so much indigeneity you know and it doesn't matter who's speaking english spanish or French, because those are all foreign languages to these land spaces. I want to come back. We're going to take a break and we're going to talk more about food and the growth of Native American restaurants after the break. We will be back with more from Chef Sean Sherman, this year's 2023 Julia Child Award recipient. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back. We're talking to the sous chef, Chef Sean Sherman, our 2023 Julia Child Award recipient. So we're talking about food and restaurants. And so I, I want to delve a little deeper into the, um, the fun part of the food. And you gave some great examples with the wild rice that was like, dying to try it as you were talking mm-hmm. and compare it to the wild rice because I, I know from your explanation it's very special but um and and different than just generic wild rice um which is in itself special because it only comes from certain places 
But I was curious about some more examples of the food that you'd like to highlight that's either Aglala Lakota or other indigenous dishes that are on the menu at Awamni or that are made um, when the indigenous food lab makes makes their food. Yeah, I mean, Awamani, we have kind of a, an interesting platform to play with because we can do elevated modern indigenous food. Um, and we really try to change the menu um, quarterly. So typically around like the, the changing of the seasons with the moons and stuff like that. So the solstice and equinox. And, um, you know, to really reflect on the particular region that we might be in. Of course, we have lots of daily specials that reflects the very moment of where we are and the timing of the seasons and pieces like that. So our again, our philosophy was taking away colonial ingredients, no dairy, no wheat flour, no cane sugar, no beef, pork, chicken, um, and just really focused on a lot of native food producers. So we try to prioritize local food producers first and then national food producers. So we get a whole bunch of things like pure hand harvested wild rice, which it doesn't look like the wild rice you find in the grocery store because it's much lighter color and cooks so much faster and it's hand harvested on canoes and you know it's an amazing product and there's a lot of diversity in that product because like different lakes produce different rice and then we have all sorts of you know things like maple and maple sugar and birch and you know and other trees that we tap so this year i think we tap maple birch box elder black walnut and you know it's just utilizing like all these pieces because once you start to learn the plants of our areas then you start to see food and medicine basically all around us and we can be utilizing that in our menus constantly and so you know some recipes might reflect the great plains where i grew up with uh, on pine ridge reservation or maybe the southwest or southern mexico or northern alaska or the east coast or the west coast or wherever it might be but we're just showcasing that we can be you know really having a lot of fun and interesting um menus and you know creativity that comes out of all this and we're creating a whole new generation of chefs because we have a uh, 120 employees at this restaurant in minneapolis which we're very busy and we've been sold out since we opened two years ago and you know we're coming up with all sorts of amazing recipes but we're also trying to make this food accessible to people that need it um, which is why we opened up a small native um, food market with part of our nonprofit natives at the indigenous food lab in minneapolis and you know we're just trying to work on distribution because there's still a huge issue of getting healthy indigenous foods right into tribal communities that need it the most and we're trying to figure out ways and solutions to make that food distribution possible and does that mean that what a Wom- what's on the menu at awamni tends to be leveraging the local minneapolis upper northwest or you will find things that you're bringing in from other Native American producers in the in the Southwest or the West or or even in the- yeah because we get like corn from the from like Durango area from the Ute Mountain Tribe uh, we have some coming from a Pima community down south of Phoenix uh, we've gotten a bunch of products out of New Mexico or Southern California we have a lot of Potawatomi corn from Michigan um, we've gotten a lot of stuff out of North Dakota with some of the three affiliated tribes which were farming tribes the Hidatsa Rikara and Mandan. Um, we have some Dakota seeds here in Minnesota, um, and there's just been a lot of really interesting um, you know, pieces out there. And you know, digging into the agricultural scene, digging digging into the heirloom seeds, and understanding who is still producing a lot of these pieces um, was something that I started early on. So I've been having I've had a lot of connections with indigenous seed keepers across this country and and beyond. And there's you know so much amazing diversity out there of all these pieces. And then just understanding the wild foods that make the distinct uh, you know 
just flora of no matter where you might be like you know what is the what is an indigenous food of florida or what is the indigenous food of new mexico or indigenous food of, of alaska and just defining that um, utilizing recipes that make sense and timing and proximity to to these flavors and some of these places that come from but again featuring indigenous food producers first um, and then building menus and everything around those pieces and do you want to give, I was just trying to get to some more specific examples just so people can get their head around it who can't get a reservation at Womney yet. Sure. Um, like, do you want to talk about the proteins? Because I kind of skirted over that. You said, you know, you don't typically use beef, uh, chicken, or pork because those are imported to North America. But what yep. do you use? Um, so proteins are easy because basically any animal out there um, is game for the most part, but we use obviously a ton of bison. All of our bison comes out of Cheyenne River, Sioux Tribe, which is in the center of South Dakota. Um, we use other animals like elk and uh, venison. Um, sometimes we've had moose, um, we've had bear, we've had beaver, um, lots of rabbits, lots of birds, lots of ducks, lots of turkey, lots of geese, quail, and an immense amount of fish um, just because in Minnesota we have um, 15,000 lakes. Um, so there's a lot of whitefish and northerns and trouts and things like that coming out of here. But then we also have seafood purveyors um, uh, coming from the coasts to get seafood that's indigenous to those particular regions, whether they're lobsters or oysters or mussels or, uh, or whatever they might be. Um, coming from either particular region and even insects, you know, we have, I think I go through about 15 pounds of crickets a week on the menu at Awamni. Yes, I was reading about your cricket mix, which is like, I guess, one of the signature dishes and one that people say, wait, can you give for listeners, can you give an idea of what the flavor profile is? Like, how does it taste? Yeah, I mean, crickets are so normal in so many parts of the world. You know, I lived in Mexico for a long time and you see crickets and grasshoppers out there in the markets all the time and people selling them. And, you know, so for our the way that we process them, we found a local cricket grower. Um, so we get frozen fresh crickets and then we um, boil those in maple water um, to give them some flavor. And then we toast them in the oven, tossed with a little bit of oil, salt and chili. Um, it just gives them a really nice crunch, really nice texture, really nice flavor. And then we mix it with some indigenous seeds like pepitas, which are pumpkin seeds, sunflower seeds, um, sometimes quinoa or amaranth and pieces like that. Um, and just to, like make a really interesting little mix of things for people to try. And pretty much everybody tries them just because it's unique. It's on the menu. And, you know, it's just a statement of uh, other protein sources out there, especially proteins that are natural to North America. And would you say that crickets inherently actually don't have that much flavor themselves? They're more the sort of crunch and bite and add protein. And so actually the flavor is built from the other ingredients. Yeah, I mean, I would say if you ate just a raw cricket, it would definitely have a flavor to it. But if you can, you know, make it taste better with kind of the process of, of something like we do, then yes, you can you can make it taste like what you want to taste like. And for those who might be squeamish, I'm struck by there's a lot of mammals that eat crickets as their main, smaller mammals, but as their main food source. So. Yeah, they're so good. High protein, <laughs> way, way more sustainable. And, you know, we removed beef, pork and chicken just because they weren't natural to this continent and it hadn't been here that long. So there's just so much protein out there um, to choose from. And we just try to showcase that. But we also do a lot of plants, like a huge part of our menu is completely plant based because we're not putting cheese or butter or dairy and everything. So if it doesn't have protein on it, then it's just, you know, I think over like 60% of the menu is plant based if you want it to be. 
And uh, do you want to call out a couple of your favorite um, signature plant-based dishes? I assume something with corn is... Yeah, we have some nixtamal corn, which we've had with a very, you know, because we make a lot of nixtamal, which is hominy um, or pasoli or whatever you want to call it, depending on which part of the country you're from. But um, it's all the same product, but using different native corns and different, you know, seasonings and flavors um, as it comes in. Sometimes it's with wild herbs in the middle of summer, sometimes it's with dried chilies or something. We also use a lot of different kinds of native beans, like we use a lot of tepary beans out of the Southwest um, and, you know, seasoning them to kind of make them taste like the Southwest. So using like agave and chilies and, um, and pieces like that, maybe some nopales sometimes. Um, and, you know, there's just a lot of amazing food and flavors out there to play with. Um, and, you know, we're having a lot of fun. I think there's a lot of opportunity for indigenous foods for the future, basically everywhere again, because we also have traveled overseas a lot and we see a lot of the same all over, whether it's in New Zealand or Hawaii or Australia or Southeast Asia or India, Africa, South America. Um, there's just so much opportunity out there for people to really um, start to think about the food systems and the cultures that have been there for a long time to really define, um, you know, what are indigenous foods of all of these particular regions and how can we help steward indigenous peoples and cultures for future generations? Well, that, that I wanted to go back to something you brought up before and that relates to what you're talking about is, you know, part of your epiphany was how little you saw Native American food across the country, in particular, like there were no restaurants. And I know that's of particular importance to you. Is that something Natives is directly trying to help foster or you're trying to mentor people? Like, I, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about why it's so important to have more Native American both run and I assume... Um, uh, menus that reflect Native American and lo truly local ingredients on the menu. Yeah, with our nonprofit, we're just trying to address um, some really major issues, which is um, an access to indigenous foods in general, especially for tribal communities. So we set up um, the Indigenous Food Lab in South Minneapolis to be kind of a center point for our region. So we have a production kitchen, we have USDA licensing, so we can be, so we are a micro to medium sized co packer that we're kind of growing with to see more indigenous food um, items get there out there on the market. Um, and the market that we have has about 40 different indigenous food purveyors for people to choose from. So there's all sorts of retail indigenous food products from rice or beans or corns or you know, jerkies or other things, you know. And there's just a lot to explore there. Um, we also have a digital classroom to teach a lot of indigenous education because our two main goals are creating access to indigenous foods, creating access to indigenous education because we feel like they go hand in hand and education is such a huge part of it. So we created a place where we can have community classes on all facets of indigenous education, which is everything from cooking and culinary and food preservation to seed saving and gardening and farming and soil management to wild foods and permaculture and plant identification, medicinals, language, storytelling, um, basically anything that falls under an indigenous perspective of education and academia, which we're slowly defining. And we set up a lot of video work so we can just record everything that we do and, and uh, archive it, put it online for everybody to access to learn more and more and more about indigenous foods. And then our goal is to work with tribal communities, with indigenous entrepreneurs to help develop more food businesses and food production 
to help tribal communities implement indigenous food operations in their own community um, and make this food accessible to create distribution points so we can help send more of these foods outwards to those communities. And then the whole thing gets replicated. So we're already working on opening up our first indigenous food lab extension in Bozeman, Montana, which is centrally located to work with all the tribes out there and do the same process of having a marketplace, a distribution point, a production kitchen, a classroom, um, and some kind of public eatery, which could be um, a, as small as a food food counter to as large as a full scale restaurant like a Wamni here in Minneapolis. Um, but you know, we have other regions that we're working towards right after. Bozeman, which will probably be Anchorage, Alaska, Rapid City, South Dakota, possibly Oahu, Hawaii, and even other places beyond. You know, so our goal is to, you know, replicate this to steward indigenous knowledge spaces, to store everything online and to make everything open source for everybody to learn to really define all this amazing indigenous regional diversity that we have out there and celebrate all this cultural diversity. And so is your hope that these centers and Awamni as a restaurant both attract people with indigenous knowledge or indigenous culture interest, they get trained and then they go off just as traditionally was in the French system. Uh, you know, Thomas Keller's trained lots of people at the French Laundry who've gone off to all different parts of the country and opened their own ventures. Is that what you're kind of seeing as the way to, to grow Native American restaurants and businesses across the country from sort of having bases that then spread tentacles from people who've trained there? Absolutely, because we just want to be a support center to see more development of that so we can train people directly. Um, we've already had one of our chefs create their own native restaurants in Wisconsin just uh, this last summer. Um, and we want to see more and more and more of that. You know, So we're just, again, trying to create a support system for something that's never existed before and try to steward indigenous knowledge. And again, this translates to not just the U.S., but all of North America and the rest of the world eventually. So I think you've just described this, but just to put a finer point on it, is that how natives will use the $50,000 grant from the foundation that comes with the Julia Child Award to support all of these programs? I'll probably apply that grant specifically to the um, to the, the training um, studio kitchen that we developed that has all the cameras and stuff like that, just to make sure that we have the resources and things, because uh, I think that's a really um, fun place to put those funds um, to really help develop, because that, that culinary education that we'll be developing um, will be something that a lot of people can utilize in the future. So you're going to make a, a point of... Uh recording different lessons and teachings or, or demonstrations so that that knowledge can can be spread and people can watch it wherever yep. they are when they want constantly because we'll have community classes where people can learn about whatever topic we're teaching you know so if it's culinary or food it could be cooking techniques it could be making nixtamal or masa or tortillas it could be cooking with native ingredients it could be understanding how to utilize wild foods how to preserve foods and there's just so many options of things that we'll create and plus we'll just be doing tons of recipes um, that people can just tap into and you know we're in this world where people just like little bite-sized uh, videos you know so so much social media is out there and we'll just be creating a whole bunch of recipes for people to watch about uh, so many ideas, especially with the foods that we're selling right, up, right out of our market space. Um, so it's a really fun project to put together and can't wait for people to start to see all the videos that we'll be producing ourselves and eventually um, just grow outward from there. Sounds pretty exciting. I'm looking forward. We're going to take another break and when we come back, we'll hear Sean's Julia moment. 
Information about tickets to the gala presentation of the Julia Child Award to Chef Sean Sherman on October 24th, 2023 at the Depot in Minneapolis will be announced very soon. Proceeds from the gala benefit the Smithsonian Food History Project. Make sure you're following the foundation at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram for all the latest updates and when tickets are on sale. We'll also be on threads very soon. As we approach our major milestone of 200 episodes, this is episode 199, we'll be moving from weekly drops to shorter flights from time to time. While we may not be in your feed as frequently, make sure to stay subscribed and follow us on social media to be the first to hear about new episode series. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Sean, what's your Julia moment? Well, I would say I have a couple of them because I'd say as a young child, like I said, growing up on Pine Ridge, um, we spent a lot of time outdoors and we didn't have, we didn't, TV wasn't really the option. Um, but we did have two and a half channels and one of the clearest channels we had was PBS. So I do remember watching a lot of the shows at home, especially maybe it was a sick day from school or something like that, or, or a winter's day where you just have to be inside. Um, but I just always enjoyed um, the cooking shows, um, especially back then. There just were a handful of amazing cooking shows, not like there is today where there's just like more than you can ever watch or choose from, you know, which is great. But, you know, there was a very, very small group to choose from. And then I also say that later in life, because I started working in restaurants at a very young age when I was 13 um, in the Black Hills in South Dakota and eventually moved to Minneapolis, where I just kind of grew my career out and became a young chef in Minneapolis. But when I got to a point of becoming an executive chef, I hadn't gone to culinary school. Um, and even though I considered it, I made the decision to just teach myself. So basically, I just bought um, some really important textbooks um, to learn from, like the Culinary Institute of America, their handbook that they basically teach all their students. Um, but what was really helpful to me was Julia's Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Um, and to me, that was something that I really learned initially from as I was really interested in actually making culinary as a career and growing into a chef as a, you know, as a young man in my 20s. Um, and that book holds a very special place to my heart. That's so interesting to hear kind of based on the discussion that we just had and the food that you do at Omni, because, of course, mastering is very centered on these very Western, you know, although I guess it does involve, you know, the French actually eat in some ways a more diverse diet than than many because Julia will have recipes for game or um, other parts of the animal that Americans don't tend to eat. 
Yeah, I would say that there's a lot of regional aspects to French and Italian cooking for sure. And that was just the base education that I got. And it was a really important education to have as I created a career in the culinary world, you know, but it was also really important for me to, uh, when I did understand and have the epiphany of the work that I'm doing, um, to understand all of that knowledge, um, to know what I was looking for, for something different when I was really looking at um, an indigenous viewpoint of culinary and really trying to understand that through that culinary lens. Um, but it was important to have that really strong base of understanding how food and cultures, especially coming from Europe, are utilizing it so we can uh, apply that knowledge into what I'm doing right now. But again, also just knowing how to look at it a little bit differently. Um, so, it, but it was a, definitely a big part of my own education of becoming, becoming a young chef. And uh, again, like that's a, a wonderful book. I also think I just wanted to ask you your thoughts because there's some interesting things that I think sometimes blow people's minds who don't think about food that much that, you know, the tomato and tomato sauce is so associated with Italy. But of course, that ingredient was imported from the Americas and mm -hmm. even potatoes and all these different ingredients um, that are seem to be symbolic of these European cultures are actually native to the Americas. And how, how do you look at that kind of irony? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's really important to understand there's so many amazing foods and flavors that come out of the Americas that are just completely integrated into other cultures, you know, and you look at, you know, corn with polenta and the different kinds of beans that came from Americas and the chocolate and vanilla and, you know, the turkey and like there's, and there's so many amazing flavors. And, and so it's important I always thought that food history is so important and, you know, it's, it's a huge part of the work that we do. And again, just utilizing that food history with an indigenous perspective, but like we were just in Italy this last year at the Terra Madro and we put on a dinner and we made a lot of recipes that were familiar to Italian people, but utilizing only indigenous ingredients to the Americas and just, you know, being able to tell that story through that food. That's so exciting. Well, I'm so thrilled you were able to join us and, and share more about, I think, the really exciting and innovative and important work that you're doing individually and that you're doing through Natives and Awamni. So thank you very much, Sean. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thanks, everyone, for listening. To learn more about the many facets of Sean's work, you can go to seansherman.com, and it's natives.org, N-I-T-I-F-S. And it's at the underscore Sue underscore chef, S-I-O-U-X, and at natives underscore org and at indigenous food labs all on Instagram. I'm T. Shulkin on Instagram. The Julia Child A Recipe for Life interactive exhibition continues at the Henry Ford Museum of American Innovation in Dearborn, Michigan. It runs all summer until just after Labor Day. You can join Julia and Paul's meal at La Caronne or step into Julia's shoes behind the camera on the set of The French Chef. For tickets and more information, visit thehenryford.org and click on current events. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. 
Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.